good day, everyone, and welcome to the Lighthouse Beacon podcast. My name is Rami Shami, and I'm your host for this podcast. But before we begin today, let us honor the land we are meeting on as a traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabe, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat peoples, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis peoples. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit. A little background about our organization. We are located in Oakville, Ontario, but provide services to the greater Toronto area. We offer facilitated peer support groups to help children, teens, and their families following a death in their family. Our groups are ongoing and open-ended, which offer each family member an opportunity to participate in their own way. And we launched these podcasts to bring a greater awareness not only to children's grief support, but especially the diversity within children's grief. Today, our very special guest, Mr. Andrew Blake, has been kind enough to join us to share his wisdom, experience, and knowledge, especially as it relates to children's grief support. A little background on Andrew, and I loved your bio. I, it's so encompassing, Andrew. You've, you've done quite a bit. Andrew is the Director of Program Development at Serana Institute, and along with his wife, Angie, is a co-founder. In 2010, Andrew was ordained as a Buddhist chaplain by Roshi Joan Halifax, a leader in the fields of compassion, caregiving, and end of life. A teacher and an educator of mindfulness meditation, Buddhism, end-of-life caregiving, and his mindful listening work, Andrew has created training and curriculum at U of T, or University of Toronto, through the Applied Mindfulness Meditation Program, and at Sick Kids Hospital through the Mindfulness Project, and at Hinks Delcrest Center, as well as numerous conferences, hospitals, hospices, and organizations involved in service, healthcare, end-of-life care, and volunteer caregiving. In addition to his teaching, he guides individuals and families at end of life and serves as an officiant at memorials and funerals. Good day, Andrew. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the only one thing you miss is I'm also a counseling psychotherapist. So that's just that other, well, I, I, I say I'm a guy who wears a lot of hats. So I got one more hat, which is my psychotherapy hat too. <laughs> Absolutely, Andrew. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. I so appreciate you joining us uh, on the mm. podcast today especially with some of your personal experiences which in children's grief, which I'm really looking forward to, uh, to hearing of. Can you tell us a little bit how what you've experienced, what you've learned, and what you've done in your life has brought you to where you are today? I mean, that includes your life story as well, right? Yeah. Well, first of all, I want to say thank you, Rami, for inviting me to, to share this time with you. I'm really looking forward to it and appreciate all the work that you do uh, in the work in the field. So I just want to thank you for inviting me and, and for everything you do. You know, so I, I've been kind of reflecting, you know, of course, coming to talk with you, you get you really reflecting on things. And, uh, so this morning I was really reflecting, you know, on, on deaths and on the impact of certain deaths and how there's like three kind of seminal deaths in my life. And they, they, these three people are, are hugely important in terms of what's happened in my life. Um, and the first one immediately I think about it is the death of my father when I was six years old. And so that's 1965. And so the world of end of life care and death education, you know, was pretty non-existent at that time. Um, our relationship with death, you know, was very cut off and disconnected. Although, you know, one of the memories, one of, you know, there's several vivid memories I have. One of the, the memories I have is, is, uh, you know, the house being filled with all these 
you know, all this food, but they were mostly jelly fruit salads and tomato aspects and, and like there was no coordination. Like everybody brought a jellied salad of some kind to the house. I think we, we ate jellied salads for a while, you know, after my father died. Um, so that, that kind of that sense that, you know, people didn't talk with each other and kind of come together and understand, you know, but they, they were caring. But the death, uh, you know, the death of my father, I would say, as I came to understand it much later, you know, I didn't understand this as a child, but it was very traumatic. You know, it was, there was a lot of trauma that, that happened, you know, deep impact of a six-year-old boy's life uh, in a culture that, you know, number one, didn't know how to talk to a child about death. So then you're, you're pretty isolated and, and, you know, you don't have anyone to talk about it. Your mother who has four sons and not a lot of a support system, you know, very disconnected support system herself, you know, is going through her, you know, challenges and eventually, you know, kind of develops some mental health issues as a result of his death. Um, you know, it's a very complex situation that I'm sort of growing up in, you know, in, a, in my family. And I, you know, one of those things that I observed, you know, for myself and as I look back was that there was a lot of fear, you know, because there wasn't a language to help a kid talk about death and think about death. And, you know, I just had a kind of a, a, uh, a kind of fearful view that um, became an anxiety at, at night. So like after he died, I, you know, I would be very scared, you know, of the dark when I would, you know, I, I was afraid of the dark when I would go to sleep. And, um, and I remember, you know, I used to tell my mother, I had, she had to leave the hall light on. I needed the hall light on to sort of have some light coming into the room. And there was this little chip piece of paint on the wall. And that piece of paint used to change into my father in his coffin. And he would, and, and, and at night he would sit up out of the coffin and I would be terrified. Yeah. So that kind of gives you a bit of sense of one of the ways that death, death informed my life. But what's really interesting is even though there were those, you know, kind of challenges that the sort of inability to talk about death. I mean, even after my father died, we never really talked about him. You know, there wasn't a language. You know, now we, you know, many cultures have a language to talk about death. But, you know, sort of North American culture doesn't have a language to talk about death. It didn't have a a mechanism, you know, like in other cultures, there's ways that death gets acknowledged and death gets honored. But, you know, so we would might acknowledge him two times a year, right? But I would see my mother suffering every year, like as the anniversary of his death approached every year, she would go into depression. Like it, it was kind of like she would annually come back to the time of when he died and, and she would just, you know, start struggling more and more. And it, it, became kind of like a seasonal depression that you would go into every year. So, you know, death really at that level had a, you could say a negative, really negative effect on our family life it was very challenging. Uh, you know, as, as you know, through this work, you know, grief has a lives in your body, right? And it's, uh, you know, something that benefits from being expressed, right? It benefits from having a home, and the work you're doing supporting families is, is so critical because then there's a place for, you know, young children, older teenage children and family members to, to be in dialogue and, and have a place to express these things. So on, on another side, so, so let's say on the flip side of it, it drove another sort of energy 
both from my mother and myself. I think, you know, we were, I was more in a sense, very connected to her emotionally than my, than my other brothers and also later spiritually. So I know for myself and for her, there was a, it, be, it began a search for something deeper. It's like his death, you know, changed everything. You know, I think for my mother in that culture of the 60s and early 70s, you know, in that culture, a widowed woman wasn't really considered a, uh, somebody that the community wanted, especially other women. Other women didn't want a widowed women, woman, you know, she was a bit of a threat, you know, like in, in terms of the culture. So our home became kind of a little oasis for the neighborhood. You know, my mother sort of made the community where all the people around our lives, like in our friends, and so our home sort of became like a, a place where, you know, even when there was struggle and strife, I remember, you know, my mother, uh, a young woman had uh, uh, had gotten pregnant and her parents were angry and she, you know, she brought her in and cared for her and supported her, you know, when she was going through difficult times. So home life became a different kind of place. And, and she she started a spiritual path when I was 13 years old. She made a decision to step away from her Christian roots and, and began searching uh, for what I would call sp through spirituality, began to search for uh, something. And I think for me that that segue, she started searching, it started a search for me in my really early teens that I needed to understand where my father had gone. Like I could not accept the death without you know, I couldn't integrate my father's death without understanding where had my father gone? Like, what happened? Where was he? You know, was he in heaven? Was he in hell? Like, like I was, I, I deeply struggled with that question. And that question really informed a huge part of the rest of my life. That need to understand from a spiritual level you know, what happens at death? And, you know, from what I had experienced, you know, just from how it went in, in the church and, you know, that way that I experienced death, it was quite a scary, frightening kind of abyss. It wasn't very helpful, you know, and I needed a, to find a story at least that, that, that brought ease to that, you know, really towards that child in a sense. And that led me on my own, uh, you know, inner quest spiritually, you know, at the age of, you know, 13, 14, even 15 years old, I started exploring other spiritual traditions, you know, looking for other answers, you know, what was the soul? Was there a soul? You know, what happens when we die? Uh, what do other religions believe? And I started learning about, you know, reincarnation and, you know, views of, you know, even we were a little bit interested in the paranormal in our home and, um, and, you know, and then along with some of the interest in the paranormal, you know, my mother, you know, there, there were times when mediums would come over and, you know, the psychics would be in our house and, and, you know, I remember one psychic, you know, saying, oh, there's a presence in the room and they've got a gold ring on their left pinky finger. And of course, my father used to wear this gold ring on his left pinky finger and, you know, but then, you know, but then there's also those memories of my mother, you know, telling me even, even. May, many years later, she would sit in the living room in the wing chair, you know, waiting for him to come home. Like there was still in her this deep longing, you know, 
because she also uh, was informed by death. You know, her mother had died when she was two years old. So she had, you know, and her father couldn't take care of her. And her father, um, you know, took her to her, his sister and she was raised by her sister. Right. So these, you know, this, this story of how death informs our life, I think, for some of us, we don't find that story until much later in our lives. You know, many of us don't even experience a death or a loss until we're 30, 40, even I know people 50, 60 years old, you know, having very you know little encounter with death. And for some of us, it happens very young. And when I was a teenager and as we started exploring these things, I remember my mother and I actually sitting down and, and actually like being grateful that we'd gone through this now, like that we could actually say that death had taught us something that that you know, that his death, as difficult as it was, had opened us to things that we probably wouldn't have been open to. So, you know, that's one of the things that it isn't always that way, right? But that there are gifts, you know, that there's a Rilke poem or a phrase from one of his poems, you know, love and death are the greatest gifts given to us, but they often pass by us unopened. But there's a gift in death. And, and for me, you know, in, in so many ways, my life was characterized by those gifts, right? By those gifts that death opened up. And definitely spirituality uh, was one of them, for sure, you know, especially in my adolescence. That's incredible, Andrew. I, I've known you for some time, and, and I had no idea this life story was present. If I may ask you, I have a hundred questions for you, but I'm going to try yeah. to narrow them down. Yeah. So from six years old, Till fourteen, fifteen. How did you be present with? How did it infuse your body? What happened to the grief? Like, how did you survive that experience? Watching your mom, you know, almost go through a seasonal depression. Did you become a mm -hmm. caregiver for her during that yeah. time frame? What yeah. happened to Andrew? Yeah, like I think you know, in my work as a as a psychotherapist, you know, one of the things I talk about and those that understand more about complex trauma, we, we understand about the child consciousness or how the child gets wounded. You know, I got wounded in the sense that my mother wasn't able to be there for me emotionally, right? She she was, you know, she had four boys, you know, she had to survive, right? And, you know, she had to figure out how to raise her children. I mean, I, I learned that by the time I was a teenager, I found this out, but we actually were living in upper middle class suburbia, but on mother's allowance, you know, like she was, you know, because she, she had to retrain herself, she had to find work eventually, we were on welfare for many years, and I knew nothing about that. And I became her emotional caregiver. I mean, that what was my, my way, uh, you know, I needed to make sure she was emotionally okay. And even later in therapy, I mean, you know, she actually came to one of my therapy sessions. And and she said that was wrong for me to do that. But you were so you were such a good listener and you were so kind to me and, and you you cared for me so much. I let you take care of me. So in a sense, I always say that 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 aspect of becoming her caregiver is also my gift to the world. There's a gift that comes from that, but there's also a wound that comes from that. Right. And so how do we, you know, as a young, you know, young person, you know, wasn't great with my brothers. My brothers didn't like this this aspect of me. It made me much more uh, effeminate. And, you know, I was more caring, and so I got more ridiculed. You know, even out in the world for being a more sensitive. You know, I was 
I was creative. I liked the arts, like poetry, you know, it, it led to like persecution, you know, for being, you know, more sensitive, more caring, more emotional. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that's one of the ways I cope. But, you know, I, I think the other thing is that I, you know, I, I was quite an achiever. So I was quite, you know, you know, on lots of levels, both in school and athletically. I was, you know, I think I put a lot of my energy into achievement and doing, right? So that even is also one of my gifts and one of my weaknesses. It's like not being able to regulate my doing, you know, I can. So there's, there's that aspect as well that I just got really busy. You know, I was, I was a kid that always had a lot to do on the one hand, but yet on the other side, you know, this deep uh, anguish and pain inside, right? There was like a lot of, internal conflict in me and i remember even as a young boy i used to rock my bed it was a joke in, in it was a joke in our family because i broke the posts off of beds for my rocking right so there was a way that i learned some you know unhealthy patterns for self-soothing and those actually created much deeper complex problems especially around sexuality and and stuff as i grew up that they, it complicated my you know, because I didn't know how to take care of myself. That was the missing piece is that when when our parents are not, you know, for whatever reason, and death being one of them, are not able to give us the caring that we need, then there's this way that we try to figure out how to soothe ourselves, the way we try to take care of ourselves. And it isn't always effective. And I definitely developed some unhealthy, you know, so I was a very complicated kid, <laughs> right? I had this like kind of confused, more troubled side, and then this, you know, really high achieving, wanted to look good on the outside, well behaved, and, you know, like a the good boy, you know, so I, I was a complicated kid uh, growing up, especially in that period. And, you know, I think it led to, you know, a need for me to better understand kind of led me into psychotherapy and, and things later, right, because I, I saw I saw the effects of my suffering and I wanted to, wanted to do something about it. Yeah. Thank you, Andrew. Is it fair to say that your experiences in, in, in grief as a child resulted in you finding ways to self-soothe, self-regulate, cope, um, manage and survive? Like you were left pretty much to your own devices, right? Like you were, completely. you were left completely. Yeah. And, and, and to add to that, with your dad, your, your dad, your father dying at six and your mom being in this uh, seasonal depression, you were kind of left also to raise yourself at the same time. What would have helped at that time frame? I mean, you know, the work we do at Lighthouse yeah. Giving Children is to support children, give them a safe, a safe space, an opportunity to, to express their grief and process it. What would have helped at that time or what do you, what would you have changed at that time frame, especially eight to 14? Or would you have changed anything at all? Because as many of it made it who you are today, but there's still a lot of that pain that, you know, that was influencing. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, having, you know, sensitive places, I mean, well, let me just say, like, by the time I was 12 years old, I was very, very fortunate because my my mother did reach out and eventually found resources. So when I was 12, there was an organization called... Uh, Human Services Community. It was a Rogerian-based uh, center that did life skills training. And so it was a place where 
you know, I went at 12 years old and did what they called their teen basic. And it was a, actually a place you could go and be with other teenagers and learn to listen to each other and learn to be able to, in a healthy way, hear each other. And so I think that would be one ingredient. I mean, I certainly, you know, the, what you, what I hear you're doing, like the peer to peer, just like creating environments where, you know, and even in the work I do today, work with healthcare uh, and caregivers in general, creating a place for people just to share, you know, being able to talk about the grief or to talk about whatever it is that's going on. We know that that alone, having a place to express and to share, you know, has a huge impact on our health and our well-being. You know, just that alone, right? So that would be the one thing, you know, just having like what you're doing, a place that I could have gone as a as a six, seven, eight, nine, whatever age, you know, and, and, and talk about, you know, because when I went, I remember the day I went back to school in grade one. I mean, there was a, there was a sole decision in that moment that I wasn't the same as anybody else. Like I was different than everybody else. I remember walking in in grade one and I walked back into the class and I don't know why it was. I, the whole class was there and I walked into the room. I don't know how that happened, but you know, I kind of like the whole class was there and I walked into the room and like, you know, the whole room is staring at you. Right. And the teacher said barely nothing. Like, and so I just kind of like came into my desk and, you know, I sat, you know, today that wouldn't happen. I mean, you know, today we were so much more aware there would be some acknowledgement. You come back to the classroom and, and, you know, so that would be another area, you know, that it is that that kind of education. It's the importance of, you know, creating a field of, of, of you know, acknowledgement for, for loss and death and grief. That, But I think the other part of it is, you know, having, you know, more of a, you know, this trauma-informed or the complex trauma-informed approaches to recognize that, you know, children can be going through much more complex things because death, you know, and I find this in my work, in my counseling work, I will often be, you know, people often come to me during the process of grief, right? And so I've worked with a lot of people during the loss of a child or the loss of, uh, you know, a, a spouse or, you know, it's some some loss. And there's one of the things that you begin to see with, with grief is that grief, there, there can be grief that's related to the death, right? But then there's the complex grief. In other words, the grief can also, because it's such a strong emotion, can activate other issues, underlying issues, psychological, family system issues that are happening. So that's why, you know, we use that term complex grief, right? Like, you know, grief can be very complicated. You know, that's would be the other piece is having people understand that, oh, this family system, this is a very complex grief, for, you know, for this family. You know, knowing that the mother, you know, the mother also lost her mother. So there's I'm quite sure that that the death of my father activated my mother's own complex grief around the death of her mother and the abandonment issues that my mother had were huge. Her, her father abandoned her. Her mother and father abandoned her. I'm quite certain because in retrospect, all the training I did, I can look back and say my mother was in complex grief. It wasn't just the death of my father that led to her depression. Right? So that's the other piece of it is like, you know, in understanding grief, it's not just the grief always that we're we're naming here, but also grief can activate other levels of distress and, and unresolved issues within us. Absolutely, Andrew. 
But as a six-year-old to a 15-year-old, that wasn't in any on the radar at no. all, was it? No. No. So, yeah. So, I mean, he had to, he had to take care of himself and he was pretty independent. I mean, I was, I, I, I was a bit of a, <laughs> I don't know how much I can say. I mean, but I was one of those kids. I was smoking cigarettes by the time I was 11, 12 years old. I mean, I was like, I was pretty dysregulated, but I, again, I was complicated that being on your own, not having that support. Had I had that support, Rami, I'm sure I might have still become the person I am with that support to to be able to do it in a healthier way. I guess that's what I would say. Like the support would have given me the the, the tools that I needed, right? The human support, you know, where my mother couldn't listen or, or didn't recognize that I had needs and you know, to have groups or situations where I could just even talk about that, you know, I just think would likely have just given me, you know, a healthier base from which to to move through the, the challenges, you know, both positive and negative that came out of that experience. So you have a, your understanding of, of complex grief and, and traumatization, what have you, Andrew, came from life experience and education and training. Now, given that, I mean, I think most social service organizations have some aspect of education in that, in that regard, but, you know, the general public doesn't. So as a six-year-old to 12 or 13, back then, trying to navigate grief and all these experiences and your, your personality and who you are, you know, starting to, uh, to emerge, what are some of the ways that you found yourself regulating your experience, or actually, if I may ask you, and, and maybe this—I hope this isn't too intimate—what did you actually feel in those in those in those times? Like that boy walking into grade one, and everybody looking at you. Was everybody looking at you because they knew you lost your dad? Sure, yeah, everyone knew I'd lost my dad, and I mean, I think the the feeling is—you know—when I when I I think I mentioned that I said, I'm no longer the same as everyone. So there was a real sense of feeling outside, you know, really a deep sense of isolation, you know, not feeling like I was, you know, and, and I can even remember like in, in grade, I think it was grade five or grade six, you know, being in a fight out in the, in the, the schoolyard with what it was actually with another girl. And I don't even know what we're fighting about, but I remember at one point she's, she, you know, she said, well, you know, she said, well, you, you know, your father's dead, you know, and mine isn't, you know, like this is what another, you know, another, like she actually used it almost like as a weapon to, you know, take me down, you know, like, so, I mean, it was, you know, it was something that I, you know, but again, it's, you know, like I was saying, like, you know, it's interesting that, you know, which way do we go when there's grief or suffering, you know, complex grief, whatever it is we're talking about, childhood issues, family issues, which way do we go? You know, and, and I think we're going to, because we, we want to evolve. All of us want to be good people. We want to be loved. So at one level, we're moving in a good direction. And I think in many ways, I felt that that call to, to be the best I could be, whatever it was I was doing, I really wanted to do it well, you know, because I really wanted to get attention. All right. That's, you know, when you're struggling as a kid and you're not being able to get, you know, you don't have your two parents to sort of give you those that attention you need. You know, for, for me, it, you know, 
I know for my other another brother, it, it kind of took him in the other way. You know, he was a real rebel, and he was a he was a, a just you know he got into trouble all the time, and and you know another one you know became a social butterfly, and and you know like another one was super quiet. Like we all kind of you know I saw in my in my siblings, you know, but it's really fascinating is that there's a couple of things that that are kind of funny about it. Being raised by your mother by a single parent, you know, one of the things is all my siblings are great cooks. All of us cook. Like we all took on our that our mother's nurturing, making food and feeding the family. You know, so you know, I, I think that's one way that you could see. And, and the other thing that's really fascinating is, and it kind of led me into my work as a psychotherapist. You know, sort of was seeing that all my siblings had a penchant for women that were either widowed or divorced with boys. And that became this curiosity to me. I thought, well, how is that? How, how could a family of four sons all kind of be, have this interest in, in, and, you know, you could see that, well, it was part of our story as a family. You know, it's sort of like we're, and that led me to really become curious about healing. You know, that was one of the things that I saw in my family system, that there was, you know, these unique qualities that came out of the, the trauma. But also led, we're trying to heal ourselves. It made me really interested in what, you know, how do we heal from these things, right? Like we go through challenging things in our lives, you know, but how do we heal from those things? And that's really, you know, that became the rest of my life, you know, from pretty much early 20s, my early 20s on where I, I became interested in, you know, I, I actually wanted to be a physician. I, you know, like the ultimate healer, but I ended up becoming a, a massage and shiatsu therapist. I became very interested in healing modalities. And it was in my early 20s, I actually met a Cherokee healer and teacher who uh, also was then been acknowledged by the Tibetan Buddhist community as a Dharma teacher. So that started a very important, you know, seminal part of my training, you know, and introduced me to meditation. I'd already, I mean, I had started meditating when I was 16. I was really interested in, in, in the, you know, certain things that, and those were the things that I was drawn to because I started to feel healing. I mean, I started to feel like I could regulate myself. You know, I learned meditation. I started doing yoga. Um, you know, I started learning all these alternative path therapies, you know, polarity, massage, you know, all these healing modalities. I started to feel you know, and by the time I started studying uh, the Cherokee meditation practices and Buddhist meditation practices, I experienced some even deeper shifts of transformation and change happening within myself. But it didn't actually result in what I would call, you know, I still hadn't healed from, from the trauma. I felt much better. I had more, in, you know, the meditation gave more inner resources to me. And, you know, I think, you know, even for that young kid, you know, I would want to teach him meditation. I mean, I want them to learn about mindfulness. You know, I, I would want, you know, some of those things available to, to young kids today, you know, learning how to follow their breath. And, you know, I do that with my, my granddaughter, you know, like I'll teach her, you know, methods when she's scared at night to, you know, because I didn't have anybody to do that with me. Right. I didn't have anybody to guide me when I was scared at night that there's some ways that I could use mindfulness and different practices. So I would definitely, you know, see that. But that sort of that healing journey did take me into psychotherapy eventually because I, 
you know, I started training in the 90s as a psychotherapist. And what's so fascinating about that part of the journey for me is that uh, as I start, you know, I was working as a massage therapist for many years and then transitioned into psychotherapy. And at that time in the 90s, one of my clients was uh, had AIDS and was, you know, in the decline of, of AIDS. And uh, I knew his partner and and I worked with him and his community. So it was like a whole community, like there was a large community around him. And this his death was, you know, it was quite beautiful, but it was very complex because his his family of origin were were Christian. They were born again Christian. They had never accepted his sexuality. Um, and so there was this intense conflict happening at his death. And I cared for him and worked with the family. And what was fascinating about this, Rami, is this was my first encounter of sort of caring for a family, right? Like being there, you know, being there at the actual time of death. I was with Robert when he died. I was with his partner. We, we did, you know, we did our little ceremony and ritual with him when he died. Like there was this whole, you know, and his name was Robert, and my father's name was Robert. Wow. And so there was this, this huge, like, completion of something in that moment, you know, where I was caring for this Robert. It was like, here was the Robert, like, I couldn't be there for my own father when he died, but I had learned how to be there for another Robert. And that was a very seminal moment for me. And that, that really began my end-of-life care journey. That was like... Well, after Robert, uh, there was a, you know, numerous experiences that happened then that, you know, transitioned me into caring for others at the time of death, you know, and, and I realized I had been totally prepared for that. I mean, I <laughs> prepared my whole life to be there for others at the time of death, because that's what I needed. I needed someone to be there, not just to deal with the grief, but there's that, you know, that other part is actually the care leading up to death is equally as important as dealing with the grief after death. You know, that process that a family goes through, that we go through leading up to death, it's a whole, right? It's a whole spectrum. It's not just dealing with the grief afterwards. So being able to work with families leading up to death, right? You know, that became really, you know, a big part of my work today is the, it's the whole, you know, it's the full spectrum. You know, that we have a ritual in a way, you know, and you had mentioned about diversity. It's like really connecting to a whole diverse understanding of death. And I think that because in Western culture, we we're, we don't always have, you know, we have a more secular world even that we're living in. Right. But yet the death traditions of all the different cultures have such richness to teach us about, you know, who we are as human beings. And so, you know, supporting people to have their own relationship to it is really important part of my, my work in end of life care, right? Is really asking those questions and what do you believe, you know, like, and, and nurturing those conversations and then being able to create a, a process for the family. You know, with kids, it's, it's, it's really important to have those conversations, you know. Uh, you know, being able to talk about, you know, well, what do you think happens? I mean, for me, I was terrified. I thought my father might be in hell. That was, you know, I, I needed someone to talk to me about, well, what's this heaven and hell thing? You know, what is that? And, 
you know, I found great meaning for myself as a as I discovered Buddhism and began studying Buddhism, you know, I, I gained great solace in that version, like that particular story of, you know, the trend, you know, the movement of, of us in between lifetimes and that we're kind of on a journey between lifetimes that brought great comfort to that child that, that, that didn't know how to deal with just a heaven and hell version. So I think that part of, you know, my life learning, you know, from the, from Robert leading on to, another very powerful experience with a client, another client who died. And that opened up uh, his particular death. His name was uh, Aldo. And his death was, you know, very, very powerful again, because it was a community death. It's like many, many people were involved in his dying. He, he was very well known and had a big community of people around him. But his death taught me that death and not not all deaths are like this, but death could be a healing for everybody. That that when we come together, when, when death can be met in an open, loving way, that we all can we can grow together through death, right? And even though death can be so difficult and painful, there can be gifts that can be found if we come together, you know, as communities. And that doesn't happen, you know, people encounter death in a lot of isolated ways and, and in fragmented ways. And sometimes that's a big part of our work is is being with those families that don't have the benefit of community and support. And in a sense, that's what I grew up with, right? You know, is is without having that that community and that support around. But that started my charitable work. It started our work to 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 start uh end of life education. And we had a different name. Our organization was uh uh, had a different name in the early 2000s. We became Serana Institute in 2010. But initially, we were mostly bringing in teachers and trainers, you know, bringing people that could teach people about these skills. Uh, we brought Joan Halifax and other kind of teachers to the area that were, you know, many of them were Buddhist teachers as well that were working with, you know, how can we be present? You know, how do we find those inner resources, the resiliency that, you know, we talk about that's needed to be working in end of life, you know, and there's, there's skills there. Those are special skills that we need, you know, and I think Buddhist tradition is really interested in mindfulness and in compassion based skills. And those skills I think are extremely beneficial because they teach us not to fix, right? They teach us that we don't have to make this all better. Like we don't, that's not what we, we don't have to, you can't fix grief. But you can be with grief. You know, our hearts break, you know, when there's the death of a child or the death of a parent when there's young children. And so we can't make that better, but we can certainly, you know, bring our hearts and, and our, ourselves together. That's something that I became deeply interested in is how to support people to do that. Profound, Andrew, profound. <laughs> it's uh, so much to reflect on in what you shared. You look at uh, the impact of a child who's experienced a death-related loss or even non-death-related loss like divorce or abandonment, what have you, how it shapes their entire life. And maybe there are some choices as an adult, what we resonate with, such as yourself, which I'd love to ask in a moment how it differentiated from your brothers, because it seems to me that you took a different path in, in some regards, as well, the implications of how it shapes what we believe. Uh, align with what we express. You spoke of 
you know, this child being alone and being different from everybody else. I mean, one of the things we try to do at Lighthouse for Giving Children is that this model, no child grieves alone. And that's why we were really looking at the aspects of diversity. How can children not necessarily grieve alone? And that doesn't mean this, you know, necessarily with family. And that's why we have this peer support model, this group model where children can, can somehow resonate with other children who have experienced a death related loss. But you mentioned something that I wish, and I want to ask you about, I wish we would introduce more into children's grief programming, and that's mindfulness. Can you speak to that and relate it to the mindfulness and compassion training program that I had the privilege Mm -hmm. of engaging in for, you know, two go rounds Mm -hmm. with Serena Institute? Yeah. So, uh, you know, maybe talk about the, the mindfulness and compassion training and then dial it back towards how it could be applied with kids. I mean, with, with professionals, with people working in the field, you know, when, you know, I had done, uh, training with Joan Halifax in her training program, uh, down at Yopai Institute, uh, in the mid 2000s, early, you know, 2005, 2006, I started training with her. You know, I got very involved in, in hospice work, um, in the early, you know, after Aldo died, I got, you know, started working in hospice as a volunteer and, um, and then as I studied and trained with Joan Halifax and her, you know, she had a, a 10 day or nine day program that took clinicians through a whole process of developing these inner resources. And I gradually started bringing those components back here to Toronto that, that you know, how to bring mindfulness skills, you know, what is mindfulness, you know, how to introduce people. And, you know, we were in a real surge of, of, interest in the public about mindfulness because there was a great surge of of neuroscientific uh research happening and and it was it was big like massive you know 500 research papers a year were were being exploring mindfulness so and and i think the neuroscience end of it really enables us as westerners to appreciate and understand you know what's that film oh i can't think of that kid's film uh, about, about emotions. Do you know that film? Oh, yeah. Um, That's such a great I just showed tip. it to my kid, yeah, a yeah. few weeks ago. I can't remember the name of that. Uh, but that's a that's a great one because it kind of shows a bit of what's happening in that, that the, the brain and the mind and the body kind of have all these different elements to it. And I think that neuroscience has been able to show, you know, what mindfulness, you know, one of its core abilities is it's able to start helping us to regulate emotions. And so for professionals, because, you know, think that your job and your work is being with somebody finding out that they're really ill and they're going to die or that they can't be cured or that they just lost their father or somebody they love's just been traumatically killed. Like all of these kinds of things, clinicians and volunteers are, you know, right in the crosshairs of this very strong emotional, you know, events in people's lives. So our training program really was about, you know, I focus more on this, what we call empathy fatigue, right? Where clinicians are, are exposed to so much uh, strong emotion that it begins to deplete their inner resources. And it's their, it's our empathy. So mindfulness, in a sense, helps, helps them to ground themselves, helps them to slow down. We teach them this wonderful practice called pause, which is like they, they learn how to get grounded into their bodies and, and, and then from that place, develop the compassion skills. So compassion then is my ability to be present in a way that I'm not 
you know, trying to fix the situation, you know, where I'm just open and allowing myself to be with whatever's happening. And so that became, you know, I mean, there's a lot of elements. There's like a, it's a 10 day training that you remember going through and it's five weekends and um, it really allows people to develop and connect to their the, the mindfulness skills, you know, over, you know, a, a nine month period. But I think these skills are also really essential because what they give us is also a way to be kinder and more present to ourselves. So it's not just about, you know, how I am present to another person. But what these skills really teach us is that we need to be present to ourselves. And just as I, you know, we need to be present to, well, what gets triggered in us? You know, what, how this work can also activate some of our own feelings and, and emotional states and and the importance of being self-aware of those things. So I think if you dial that all back to, you know, like for kids, it's like, you know, introducing kids at a young age to self-awareness, like just to, you know, teaching kids how to be grounded in their body, helping, you know, because already we can be developing dissociative patterns. We can already be, you know, you know, you think of dissociation as kind of pathological, but it's, it's not a pathology. You know, dissociation is a natural way of coping with, you know, difficult things. Just like the clinician that might go and have the glass of wine at the end of the day, you know, it does, it's a coping mechanism, right? And for kids already, they may be going to their games, you know, to escape from things. It can be really healthy. You know, I started running, you know, as a, a young, I, I was the fastest runner in Ontario for like two or three years when I was like, whatever, nine, seven, nine, I don't know, somewhere right around there. I was the fastest kid in Ontario for my age group, you know, so, you know, it can go into good places, right? But I think getting kids more connected through mindfulness of how to slow themselves down and how to connect with what's happening inside their bodies, you know, when there's so many feelings, you know, and grief is a very bodily, heavy, painful experience and it's very confusing it's a very confusing feeling so you know giving kids a chance to connect more to their body and then to use their breath because mindfulness just brings your mind to a focal point so rather than getting overwhelmed by uh, a feeling you can slow that feeling down so that's all we're doing with mindfulness is kind of teaching people to slow down you know, slow down. Let's just take this one moment at a time. You know, let's just take the grief one breath at a time, you know, because when emotion gets overwhelmed, it feels like it's never going to end. You feel like you will never get away from it. You feel like it will overtake you and people get really overwhelmed. And that's when we run into problems, right? When, when emotions overwhelm us. So I think those things, you know, and then there's some of the compassion skills that are, I think, super important, you know, because when when we can be kinder to ourselves, we've got a really deep issue in North America in general, strong, strong issues of self-esteem and feeling that we're worthwhile, feeling that we're good enough. We have a lot of internal negative self-criticism that, that's pretty culturally in, endemic in our, in our society here. And there's all this self-doubt about yourself. And so I think self-compassion is, you know, and there's tremendous research on you know, even introducing mindfulness with kids, um, compassion skills with kids, the wonderful research demonstrating that the health benefits and the psychological benefits of it. 
So, yeah, I think it'd be great to, you know, find ways to introduce some of those elements into this kind of work. It'd be really, really great. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Andrew. It, it was uh, life-changing for me through both uh, both sessions of the program. I hope not only to introduce aspects of mindfulness or mindfulness training to uh, into children's grief, but into those who facilitate children's grief. I think that's a big piece yeah. of it in terms of the staff okay. and volunteers. I'm hoping we can right. we can propagate that. And I, I can really resonate with this normalcy of dissociation. I mean, as a child, I experienced a lot of developmental trauma and, and my parents came from war and I feel like they had a lot of PTSD or PTSS, however it's defined, post-traumatic stress disorder. And my dissociative avenues were numerous from smoking to suicidality to, you know, over, over training and, you know, and rock climbing and risk taking. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. And really, you know, interesting, Andrew, it didn't all really come to light uh, for me until I started practicing mindfulness until my adult years in my forties that it started mm-hmm. to to service as a byproduct of trying to self-regulate it and, 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 and gain skills for that, which was, I was experiencing at work when in fact it was from all this childhood, uh, experiences. And it's profound how much a, a childhood loss can influence our entire lives. I want to circle back to something that I also found profound that you spoke to that resonates very strongly with me and, and some of the, the culture at Lighthouse for Grieving Children. And that when you spoke to about how to ask a child, not just what they believe in, but you said, what is this heaven and hell thing, right? And I think that focuses on something called personal culture. And you said, let's ask, you know, that's a culturally, in my mind, and I could be wrong, but that's a culturally humble approach is not to assume, not to, to have a competence and, and a learning that we project onto others, but actually to ask the child, what mm-hmm. is this heaven and hell piece? And I so appreciate you reflected on that because in children's grief and actually in any form of social services, but I think especially in, in grief support, that aspect of personal culture is imperative because we all navigate and manage and process uh, a loss differently. And I wanted to bring it back to your brothers. Mm. You became who you are today and your brothers navigated differently, no? So what was the influences? Where did they steer off differently or are they steered off differently? And what do you attribute that to? That's a very hard question to answer because I, I, I really, I really truthfully don't know what the, the answer to that is. I mean, that would get into a much huger philosophical conversation because I think that there's something in Buddhism we call causes and conditions. And, uh, some, there, we don't always have the causes and conditions for something. There was something in me that caused me, there was conditions in me that led me to like, literally like run through the door of some you know of some investigation of healing and spirituality and and leading to this path of service and and you know and for for one of my siblings for example you know for him that the loss led him down a very very different path like where I, one of my brothers, you know, he was kind of the football. He was like the the big, burly, tough, you know, non-emotional, you know, didn't express any of his feelings. And, you know, I was like his his nemesis. I mean, he and, you know, we fought. He and I fought all the time because I was like the polar opposite of him. And and uh, and but he, you know, I see in his life that he. That loss led him to give up on on his dreams 
like I, you know, so where, where I lived, you know, I was this idealized dreamer. I was going to, you know, he, he gave up on his dreams and, and very, at, at a very early stage, you know, what he was really passionate about. And I think what it would have led to a life of great joy for him, you know, he, he gave up on his dream and he ended up being a steel worker, you know, and he spent his whole life uh, working, you know, in, in the hottest, in the hottest part of a, a steel plant that you can work in. And, you know, another brother, it led him to, to move away. Like, I think that his way of, of coping with, you know, was to, was to move away, you know, to not, you know, I think that was his way of coping and, and was to just, you know, move away from the family and sort of create a life apart from the family. And then my youngest brother, you know, I think that his, he, I think his dream was he, he wanted to get his family, he wanted to take care of his mother financially. You know, because I think that was the thing, you know, for him, he was the youngest. And we, you know, we kind of grew up in in a home that, you know, because we didn't have the financial security to take care of our lives. Literally, we were growing up in a house that was crumbling. I mean, I literally like the whole I mean, you know, we she couldn't afford to take care of her home. You know, so we grew up in a home where, you know, she couldn't look after it. And, and I think so that drove him to want to be really financially successful. And so again, that's the four really different, you know, strategies, right? In terms of paths that, that, uh, paths that each of them led. And yet at the core of it, this sense of connection and brotherhood, you know, even in all of our extreme differences that, you know, there is a thread of, I think what we, the suffering that what we went through that also unites us. It's a very, you know, we're so different. And yet there's, cause there's not a lot of, there's no family system, you know, outside, you know, once my mother died, you know, we have no extended family. There's, there's like, we're little islands. That was just our conditions. But yeah, so I think you can really see it's really, you know, for one, how does one person, it opens up a whole, you know, life for others, it, it, you know, it informs it in a much more subtle way, in a much more subtle way. Yeah. Thank you for that, Andrew. So that makes me think of the million dollar question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if there was a, a measure of grief support for children uh, around when you all lost uh, your father, how much would it have changed? I mean, it's, it's all assumptive. How much do you think it would have changed each of your lives in terms of where you are today? Well, I mean, that's, that's a double edge. First of all, you know, you have to be open to that support. You know, like even that, you know, I, at age 12, you know, both my older brother, the one I just told you, the football player and I, we both went to this, this teen support group, right? And he thought it was hooey balooey. And, you know, I thought it was the coolest thing. And I, you know, dove into it and. So that's, you know, that's a really an, an interesting thing. We, we have to respect that in, you know, even in children, you know, because we know how complex grief is and we know that people grieve in such different ways. And so I guess I, I use that as a caveat because not every kid is it's going to feel right to them and it's not going to be their comfort zone. And and we have to respect that, that we all deal with grief differently. And so, you know, I wouldn't. So that's so I would say that like all of my brothers may not have been comfortable if, if 
Starlight was around and they could, you know, receive that, that kind of support. I certainly would have been the kid that would have used it and it would have, uh, I would have thrived in it and it would have really, it would have really supported and changed my life. And likely for my younger brother, you know, but maybe my, my one older brother, we have to respect that, that he, he closed off emotionally and we have to kind of honor that about him. You know, that, that, that's just how he, you know, and it's not right or wrong or good or bad, right? You know, maybe if he was able to, yes, I think if he was able to, Rami, it would have benefited him. Absolutely. You know, like, I think absolutely, though, you know, giving people spaces to, you know, be human beings to, to, you know, like, even we were saying about, you know, even in a grief support, you know, talking about, you know, you know, where do you think your mom and your dad are? You know, where do you think your, your sibling is? You know, what do you believe? You know, do you ever talk to them? You know, do you feel, do you feel them around sometimes? Like whatever, like, you know, we talk about the grief and the loss, but there's at death, depending on how you think about it, life continues. I always would say, well, if things do continue, like if, 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 you know, there's a 50, 50 chance, right? But let's say, let's say things do continue. And if you can think about them right now, then they can also think about you. Because if that's true, then then there's a a kind of connection that we can continue, you know. And I think that those, you know, that really can support to feel whatever it is that we feel that isn't just our loss, but it's our sense of our connection to something. And so that that conversation about, you know, what you believe, if kids have that conversation, and depending on their family of origin and the culture, bringing this sort of different views of life and death at a younger age, um, I think is really helpful. Like, I think it's a really helpful conversation, just as we're, you know, talking about emotions and grief and mindfulness. I think these are all, you know, really helpful things because death accompanies life, no matter how you look at it. It's, you you can't have one without the other. So true, Andrew, so true. But something you mentioned is the autonomy of the child, right? And I think that's such an important, the the autonomy of the child, the personal culture of the child, and it can't be a cookie cutter approach. One size does not fit all when it comes to supporting children who have experienced Mm -hmm. a death-related loss. So programming eventually at some point is going to have a fork in the road in terms of it having to diversify and break down its own barriers and develop new inroads to be able to fulfill a mission and vision statement such as no child grieves alone. It can't be just yeah. one model. That support you just mentioned too, you know, that the that the people working with them, that you know, that we're all in this together and that training and resources for the people working with them, you know, continuing to have them develop these inner resources for themselves. You know, we have a whole module where we we look at you know, everybody's relationship with their own death, you know, like, you know, do you, have you looked at your own death, right? You hear we are working with others, you know, but have you, you know, looked at it? And many people are afraid, you know, many people are afraid to even look at that, especially if you're a parent. I think, you know, one of the hardest part for people in terms of looking at their own mortality is if I'm a parent, you know, it's like, it's, it's like, you don't want to look at that, but yet that's a part of, of life. Is, is, is to is to look at that and have a relationship, you know, with death. 
So, oh, so true. So true. And it, it even maybe complicates or is especially true if you've experienced a childhood death, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I can't thank you for your time and your wisdom, your great wisdom. It's always a privilege and an honor to hear people's life stories, but especially of esteemed uh, mentor as, mm. as yourself. Any final words you'd like to share with us today in terms of children's grief and your life experiences and mindfulness? And well, I think that, you know, in, in, in terms of like the whole breadth of what you sort of, you really got me to sort of reflect on, you know, a lot of things and telling me stories um, and reflecting back on my childhood is, is really interesting, kind of good for us all to do every now and then to have a podcast talk with someone like Rami to, to, to reflect back. Um, but I think for me, you know, like for me, I found meaning and purpose from this, right? But I think the thing in our work and why training is so important for people is that, you know, people don't always find meaning and purpose in life. They find despair. They, they find, uh, loss. They find obstacles. They, they find, uh, find it very difficult to move past and move through. Uh, these challenging uh, circumstances. And, you know, I have the privilege, you know, like an incredible amount of privilege to have been able to have encountered many, many people that supported me and guided me and I learned from and, you know, I, I studied with. And, and, and so there's so many of us that don't have those resources. You know, so whether it's a, a kid, you know, like, like the kind of work you're doing is to acknowledge that that simple act of kindness of being present for a grieving child as you as you've marked in our conversation can lead to a huge impact in the whole unfolding of their story right so not to underestimate the power of our caring you know so whether i'm you know sitting you know at the bedside of somebody or i'm with somebody grieving or i'm caring for somebody you know who's ill um I also need to ensure that I, you know, find the inner resources to keep myself grounded, resilient, and able to, you know, sustain myself through the long haul of some of these complex situations. And that's, you know, so much of the work I do now is just supporting those that are doing the work, you know, making sure they're well supported so that when they sit down with that kid or that family, they're feeling more resource within themselves. Uh, and they can be kinder and more gentler towards themselves when it's this work. It's hard. You know it well. I mean, you know, being with this work has uh, brings us really close to raw, raw states. And some of them are our own. Right? Some of them are our <laughs> own raw states. And some of them are learning how to be with the raw states of other people. And that's beautiful work. And it's meaningful work. And I think people who choose to work in this area you know, just tend to be people that, that kind of open that door and walk through, you know, and not everybody chooses to like, you know, go sit with that, that person that's in such a difficult state. Not everybody feels they can do that. You know, you know what people say, oh, I can't believe you do that. I don't know how you do that. You know, people will say that to people who, you know, work with, with grief and death, but it's, it's, uh, it's, an, it's important work and it's meaningful work. And I'm really grateful that I've, you know, for all the experiences I've had, you know, both being with families and accompanying people through death 
and and working with people you know that are both healthcare and end of life care professionals. It's very very special work. It most certainly is. I'm very grateful to be, have been in the field and to have crossed paths with you. I think it's karmic in some way, yeah. but also very grateful for your wisdom, your great wisdom today. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. This is really unexpected. I just... <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure, Andrew. My pleasure. Yeah. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. If you'd like some more information about uh, Andrew's work and the Sarana Institute, you can visit at www.saranainstitute.org. For more information about our work at Lighthouse for Grieving Children, visit www.grievingchildrenlighthouse.org. Thank you so much. Stay safe and all the best. Thank you.